first good morning ever. Good morning. There we go. We're going to ask you to stand and worship this morning. If you're in the back and grabbing some coffee, make your way into the auditorium. Um, and we're going to start with some worship this morning. Praise God from whom all 
good morning. You may be seated. Well, it's great to have you with us this morning as we gather together, as we worship our God, who, as we just sang, is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. I'm glad that each of you is here with us this morning. If you're visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here with us to worship together. Um, a couple of announcements to kind of make you aware of this morning. One is that this morning at the end of our service, we're going to take communion together. And a part of our communion services, we also take a, a benevolence offering, a special offering that's used to meet the needs of people in our community. So on your way out of the sanctuary this morning, there will be someone at the doors holding a tray. Your, your benevolence offering can go in that tray. Your regular tithes and offering can go in the boxes that are on the back wall. If you are new or visiting here and you want to communicate anything with the church, there's a connect card in the seat in front of you. We'd invite you to fill that out. Um, and Any information you'd like us to have put on there and drop those in the boxes that are on the back wall on your way out um, this morning as well. Following the, the worship service this morning, we'll have our, our Sunday school hour. So downstairs, we'll have children's Sunday school. And then up here, we will have two things going on. In this room, in the sanctuary, we'll have our first um, book discussion of Essential Christianity. That's a book by J.D. Greer, just kind of walking through the, the essential core concepts of the faith. If you signed up for that and didn't get your copy of your book yet, I will have it here for you this morning. If you are just hearing about it now and are interested but didn't sign up, that's fine. We still invite you to come and hear what has to be said. Um, also this morning, over in the library, Bill Miller will lead a focused time of prayer for needs in our church and throughout the world. And so we'd invite you to be a part of that as well if you're interested in joining in a time of, of prayer. A couple things coming up in the, the near future here. On Thursday of this week, there will be common ground here at the church. It's a women's ministry event. So we'd invite any women to be a part of that. That's 6.30 on Thursday. And then on Friday night, we will have a, a family movie night. We'll be watching Lyle Lyle Crocodile serve dinner um, in the Washington movie. So dinner will be at 6 o'clock. The movie will be at 6.30. We invite you to be a part of that as well. And finally, in, on March 5th, in a couple of weeks, we'll have our next quarterly meeting. And so we'd invite you, especially if you're a member of the church here, but also anyone who's just interested in hearing more about the church, to be a part of that. With all that said, would you just continue to worship and continue our time of worship? Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, we praise you. We thank you for this chance to come together to worship you, to be united as the body of Christ that you've brought together in this place at this time. Thank you for this place to worship, for this set-aside time to worship you in our week, that you have given us this space, this time to quiet our heart, quiet our minds, and come before you as your children, as your creation, and to stand in awe of your 
goodness, to be amazed by your love for us. So as we sing this morning, as we hear your word this morning, would you use these songs, would you use your word to give us hearts that are in awe of all that you've done for us in Jesus. As we fellowship together following the service, would you help us to rejoice in the way you've worked in so many lives to bring each of us here through trial, through difficulties, through dark times, to bring us all to this place that we can be together as your children, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, would we not take that for granted? Would we not cease to be amazed by your goodness, by your love for us? Father, would all that we do here this morning serve to glorify you as a response to your goodness and love for us? We pray for for people in our church who are, are hurting, who are suffering, who are walking through trials and hard times, that you would be with them, that you would give them a keen sense of your goodness, that you would comfort those who are needed comfort, that you would walk with those who are hurting. And that even in the midst of pain and trial and suffering, we would see your goodness, we would see your love and care for us. And that we could glorify you even as we walk through hard times. Father, would you be praised, would you be glorified by all that takes place here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to ask you to stand again. When we walked in this morning, it was so hot in here. I think it's kind of cooled down a little bit, but... You know, you say musicians have to warm up. We are warmed up. Um, I hope that first song warmed you guys up. Stand up. We're going to continue some worship here. We hope you sing even louder with this one.
couple songs we're going to sing are a little bit deeper worship, I call them a little bit. Yesterday, um, let me go back a little bit. So the um, small study that we're going to be starting, the very first part of it is about Sabbath. And a few years ago, I went to a worship, we all kind of went to this worship conference in Stevens Point, and we were able to attend um, a conference, a little bit of a session on Sabbath, and in that, they talked about how Sabbath doesn't necessarily mean like Sunday. Sabbath is rest, right? And so for people who are on worship and we're serving in the church, for us, rest might look different. It might not be Sunday, but we have to take that time and kind of set it aside and have a Sabbath somewhere in the week. And I think for me, yesterday was was a day of that for me. I spent some time with my sister and had like this wonderful day of just refreshment, coming together and, and just like, um, you know, that rest that we all need. And I think on Sundays like this, it is about, it's about church and it's about worshiping God and it's about coming together and it's about finding that community with each other and that rest that we need to come into the week again. So Sabbath, in my mind, was redefined when I went to that conference because I always thought of it as like, you have to go to church on Sunday, like that is what Sabbath is. But to think of it as like that idea of rest and coming into rest is a whole different concept, right? So these worship songs, that's part of it too. We're coming into some rest. We're coming into worship with God. This is what a beautiful name it is. words on the screen should be, what a beautiful name. (laughs) There we go.
Thank you. 
Father, we come, we do confess that praise and honor is do you, do your name. That our, that what you've done for us in Jesus, our debt is paid in full. Jesus spilled his precious blood on our behalf. You are so worthy of praise for all that you've done for us in Jesus. We not take it for granted. We not fail to be amazed by your goodness to us that you've shown us in Jesus. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you think about the truly monumental events that happen in history, they not only matter in the moment that they happened, but they also kind of reframe things that happened in the past and they impact how we live in the future. If they're truly monumental, they have past, present, and future implications. An obvious example of this is September 11, 2001. We all, of course, remember like, those attacks themselves. Remember the moment that they happened. But those attacks also reframed how we thought about things that happened in the past. Most notably, the, the 9-11 attack kind of caused us to rethink how we thought about the attack on the World Trade Center in 1993. In that case... On February 26, 1993, there was a van with over 1,300 pounds of explosives that were detonated under the north tower of the World Trade Centers. And that van was positioned in such a way that the terrorists believed that the explosion would cause the north tower to collapse into the south tower and bring both towers crashing down. And of course, that didn't happen in 1993. It did kill seven people, and it caused nearly $250 million in damage, but it didn't achieve the goals of the terrorists at that time. And that attack was masterminded by a guy named Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who would later go on to mastermind the 9-11 attacks. And looking back from our perspective now, it's hard to miss the significance of those attacks. It's easy to look back and, and think that, that attack should have prompted us to be prepared for what would happen on 9-11. But if you go back right, and you read about what happened, you read about the 1993 attacks, one of the big takeaways from pundits after those attacks was that right, th these attacks proved that the World Trade Center were so well-built, so strong that they could never be destroyed. But then 9-11 comes along and it totally reframes and reshapes how we think about the 1993 events. Right? Suddenly, the 1993 events were no longer a sign of the strength and robustness of the World Trade Centers. Instead, they were a foreshadowing of the far more significant events of 9-11. Right? But the only way to get that perspective on the 1993 attack was to live through the 9-11 events. So 9-11 so radically changed how we thought about the past, but it also changed 
life in the present as it happened. If you lived through that moment, like suddenly all other concerns and worry fell away in that moment. There was this brief moment of national unity that had been lacking for years leading up to 9-11 and have been sadly lacking since. It changed how people acted in the present when that attack took place. So it affected the past, it affected the present, but it also impacted how we would live our lives going forward into the future. The most obvious example of this is air travel. I never flew before 9-11 attacks. I never experienced what it was like before 9-11, but I hear it was different. That that people could walk you to your gate and you could get through security without taking your shoes off and whatever. But 9-11 changed all that. It changed the way we've lived our lives since that day. It's had monumental effects into the future. So 9-11, it impacted how we thought about past events. It impacted us in the present moment, and it impacted the future. And today in Luke, we come to an event that, that similarly has past, present, and future implications. It's a passage that's, that's well-known. It's a passage that like, we've come throughout history to known as the Last Supper. It's the last meal that Jesus eats with his disciples before he will be betrayed and arrested and put on trial and beaten and ultimately crucified. His last meal with them. It's a monumentally important event. And as such, because it's an important event, it reframes events that came before it. It impacts how we look forward to the future, and it impacts how we live in the present. With that in mind, let's look at this passage together. We're we're in Luke chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 7. As I read through the passage, I'm going to stop at a few places and make a a few comments on things that are, are worth noting but don't really fit into the rest of the sermon. And then after we've read the whole thing, I'll come back and we'll look at how this Last Supper has impacted the past, present, and the future. So starting in verse 7, we read this. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparation for us to eat the Passover. It's just worth noting quickly that this Last Supper takes place on Passover. That the meal that we call the Last Supper was the traditional Passover meal that the disciples were celebrating together with Jesus. And we'll talk about more about why that matters in a minute, but you keep that kind of stored away for now. Continuing in verse 9, we read, Where do you want us to prepare it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. And a man carrying a jar of water had been a very unusual occurrence in that time period. It was typically a job reserved for women to be carrying water until it had been a clear signal to the disciples like this is the guy. Like, they wanted to like look at 15 different guys carrying water trying to figure out which one he was talking about. Like one guy. Right, so he starts the sign. Right. Jesus on to say, follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? 
He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and they found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And again, just make note here, like we call this the Last Supper. But Jesus says there is coming a day when he will eat a similar meal with his apostles and disciples in the kingdom of God. In other words, there's a future aspect to this meal. And again, we'll talk about that in a minute, but just keep that in your head as well. He was on to say something similar in 17 and 18. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it had been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. So Jesus clearly knows, like he knows that Judas is going to betray him. But the disciples hear that one of them is going to betray Jesus, and they aren't sure who it's going to be. Judas was not just the obvious candidate to betray Jesus. He's not like some cheesy movie villain who's sitting in the back of the room sulking with a dark look on his face, and it's obvious that he's the one who's going to do it. Nothing about Judas made the other disciples assume that he would be the one who betrayed Jesus. In fact, he was given the important and trusted job of being the treasurer for the disciples. And so the disciples are arguing about who is going to betray Jesus. And then we get this really strange transition in verse 24. They go from arguing about who's going to betray Jesus, and then in verse 24 we read, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Right? So they go from, like, I'm not going to betray Jesus. Are you going to betray Jesus? Like, who's going to betray Jesus? They go from that to, you're not the greatest, I'm the greatest. Like, in the blink of an eye. Like, a, it's a weird transition. But so it takes place, and Jesus replies to their argument over who's the greatest in verse 25 by saying, Jesus said to them, The king of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, 
so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And that's, a, that's another verse you kind of tuck away for in your head for down the road, like there's this, again, feature aspect of what's going on here. And as Simon, and Jesus goes on to say, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you, sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am, all, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. You will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, as he, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, it, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciple said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Those last couple of verses are, are confusing, they're tricky. But what they ultimately do is they show us that the Last Supper should cause us to live with a sense of a present calling of Jesus in our lives. We'll talk about more about what it means at the end of the sermon, but just they tell us that there's a present nature to what Jesus is saying in the Lord's Supper. They're taken all as a whole. I know it's a long passage, a lot going on, but as a whole, what I hope we see this morning is three things. Hope we see that the Last Supper prompts us to remember the past work of Jesus. That the Last Supper prompts us to look forward to the future victory of Jesus. That the Last Supper prompts us to live out the present calling of Jesus on our lives. The rest of our time this morning, I just want to walk through each of those three components. I want to consider what it means to remember the past work of Jesus, and to look at what it means that the Lord's Supper prompts us to look forward to the future victory of Jesus. And at the end, I want to think with you about what it means that the Lord's Supper should cause us to live out our present calling with Jesus in our lives. And so we're going to start by just considering how the Last Supper reframes past events, and how the Last Supper should cause us to remember the past work of Jesus. As we said, as we read through the passage, this meal takes place during Passover. Passover, which is one of the most important dates on the Jewish calendar. The the celebration of the way that God saved the Israelites when they were in slavery in Egypt. When he came down in judgment against the firstborn of everyone in Egypt but how he, he passed over. His, his wrath was spared, and he didn't kill the firstborn of the Israelites because they had sacrificed lambs and placed the blood of the lamb on the door flames. And Passover was then celebrated by eating this very prescribed meal that featured specific cups of wine at certain times to remember certain things. This meal contained specific foods that remind people of certain events in the Passover. So that's the meal that Jesus and the 
disciples are eating here. It's been eaten by millions of Jewish people for thousands of years, year after year after year. It's ingrained tradition in the lives of Israelites. And then Jesus shows up. And in verse 19, we're told that he took bread. Bread that was unleavened because it was intended to remind people that they fled Egypt without them having time for their bread to rise. So they take this unleavened bread, and Jesus takes it. And then Jesus makes this radical claim. He says, this bread is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance, not of the Passover, not of Israelite fleeing Egypt. Do this in remembrance of me. The Passover meal for thousands of years have been all about remembering the events of the Passover. And now here comes Jesus, and he shows up, and he takes the bread of that meal, and he makes it all about remembering him. That's a radical statement. What he's saying, right, that the Passover meal, the Passover celebration was never meant to be an end in and of itself. The Passover meal was always intended to point forward to something greater. And now Jesus shows up and says, I am that something greater. In that one statement, he reframes what Passover is all about. And he institutes what we now call the Lord's Supper or communion. This thing we do at the end of a service of the month, like it, it all starts here. And so this passage shows us why we do what we're about to do at the end of the service, why we take communion, why churches throughout generations have taken communion. It all come from here. This moment right here is the, the foundational basis for why we celebrate communion at the church family. And the first reason that Jesus tells us to take communion is that it should cause us to remember Him. The Last Supper, which, which becomes the foundation for the Lord's Supper, is it's designed to prompt us to remember the past work of Jesus, to remember all that Jesus did for us. And what we're ultimately called to remember through this meal is not first and foremost the things that Jesus taught, but what Jesus did. As J.D. Greer says in that essential Christianity book that we're, some of us are reading together, he says this, he says, the symbol of Christianity is not a lectern, but a cross. Christianity is not primarily about what Jesus taught. It's not about him primarily being a wise and good and moral teacher. He is that. But Christianity is primarily about God sending his son to die on the cross in our place. Jesus himself makes this clear. When he, he takes the bread and he says, like, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember right, that my, my body was broken on your behalf. Remember that I was crucified. I was killed in your place. Remember that I willingly came to earth knowing that my body would be broken, knowing that I would suffer. And I did it because I, I love you. 
I want to provide a way for you to be made right with the Father. And to provide a way for your sins to be forgiven so you could spend eternity together with me in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus called us to remember that he gave himself for us, out of love for us. Remember, Jesus said, you are deeply loved by the Father and by myself. Like, remember, that's what we do when we take the bread and the juice in the Last Supper. We remember all that Jesus did. We remember his broken body. And in verse 20, Jesus says as well, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Remember his broken body and also his spilled blood on our behalf. And how that broken body and that spilled blood institute a new covenant. But Jesus says there, and the prophet Jeremiah first spoke about a new covenant when he said this. In Jeremiah 31, he said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Jesus here in this passage is saying, like, I have come to institute that new covenant. I am the way that God will remember your sins no more. Through faith in me, God will remember your sins no more. And New Testament writers like Paul and the author of Hebrews would go on and they would expound on what it means for Jesus to be the mediator of the new covenant. There, there's a lot of places we could look at to talk about that, but just one brief example. In Hebrews 9, starting in verse 14, the author of Hebrews writes this. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sin committed under the first covenant. So the point of all this being that Jesus, through his sinless life, death, and resurrection, he ushered in a new era There's a new way of relating to God that is not based on the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. But it's based on faith in Jesus. It's based on trusting that His death was the perfect sacrifice for all sins. Because because of His sacrificial death, sins once and for all are, are paid for. Past, present, and future sins are all dealt with in the death of Jesus on the cross. There's no need for ongoing sacrifices year after year. It's all done in Jesus. And when we trust in Him, when the Holy Spirit comes and He dwells in us, and as Jeremiah promised, He writes God's law on our heart and in our minds. 
And he enabled us to live the life that we're called to live, a life dedicated to the glory of God. And all of this is possible because Jesus freely gave himself for us. He willingly went to the cross on our behalf, died the death we deserve to die for our sins. So when we take communion together, we're called to remember Jesus, to remember his broken body, his spilled blood for us. But the Lord's Supper communion is about more than just remembering. It's certainly about that, but it's also an invitation to look forward to the future victory of Jesus. Verses 14 through 18, Jesus says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus, like in saying those words, is clearly looking forward to a future time when, as he says, this meal finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. He's saying like, there's coming a day when the kingdom of God has been fully established on earth, when all wrongs have been undone, when all things have been set right, when God's plan for the universe is fully realized and his victory is complete. That day is coming. And when that day comes, there will be another meal, a victorious, celebratory meal that the Last Supper points forward to. The prophet Isaiah Look forward to that day when he wrote, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tear from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace. From all the earth, the Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Like I said, looking forward to this future glorious meal. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John at the future vision of this meal, he called it the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he pictures it, this celebration of all who are in Christ celebrating with a great, grand meal that Jesus has won a final and full victory. And Jesus reiterates the same concept later in the passage when he says, I confer on you a kingdom just that my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And I don't really have a great grasp of what Jesus means by sitting on thrones and judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I don't know what that means for sure, but what it clearly means in the passage 
But this passage does make clear that, that there is coming a glorious future. When we will all be in the kingdom of Jesus, we will eat and drink at this table. And when we take communion together, part of its purpose is to remind us that there is coming a day when we will eat an even better meal together in the new heavens and the new earth. And we'll be in the presence of Jesus. And we look forward to that day when all things are set right and we can eat that meal together. And when we take communion together, it prompts us to look back and remember also prompts us to look forward to a future when Jesus returns and all things are set right. But taking communion together also does one more thing. It also gives us strength and encouragement to live out the present calling of Jesus in our lives. We live in this in-between state, right? between the cross, between the resurrection and that future glorious kingdom when Jesus returned a second time and set all things right. We live in this in-between state. As we live in that in-between state, we live in a world that is still marked by sin and pain and suffering. And taking communion together is intended to strengthen us to, to live out the present calling of Jesus in our lives, here and now, in the present moment. We see this in verse 25. That the disciples are arguing about who will be the greatest. And Jesus says, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Then he goes on to say, But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Or who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Part of what it means to identify with Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus, to live like Jesus, is to live a life of servitude to not worry about being the greatest, but instead be committed to serving others. Jesus, and going to the cross, and having his body broken, and having his blood poured out, was modeling for us what this life of servitude looks like. He's the creator of the universe. He is eternal God. There is no one greater ever and yet, he took on flesh. He came and he dwelt among us, sinful humans. And he lived among us, not claiming some great stature, but living among us as one who serves. He called us to, to live the same life of serving others. In that Last Supper, I think about to break bread and give his disciples the bread and the cup. He urges them to be servants in the present moment. 
And we take communion together. An acknowledgement that Jesus came as one who served. And so we identify with him. And by identifying with him, we confess that we ought to be one to go and serve as well. Not seeking status for ourselves, but living as servants. Part of what it looks like to serve others is to, to go and tell people who don't know about Jesus, about Jesus, even at personal risk. The passage ends with, with that strange kind of interaction where we read, Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandal, did you like anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. A little verses are strange. If you're, you're confused about them, you're in good company. One of the commentaries that I read each week as I prepare for these sermons is a, a commentary by a guy named Michael Card. One of his mentors was a famous New Testament scholar named Bill Lane. Bill Lane once told Card that these verses were the most troubling to him in all the Bible. What is this business with swords and buying swords? And so Card gave himself over to the task of trying to understand these verses. And as Bill Lane was close to dying, Card went and visited him. Card told him what he had concluded about these verses. Card said this. It has to do with the flow of ministry. When they were first sent out, the disciples were dependent on Jewish hospitality. This explains why they did not carry provisions. They would have avoided the treacherous Gentile inns. Now they will be sent out beyond Judea. Luke will tell us that story later on in Acts. The disciples will be outside the protective shield of Jewish hospitality. They will need to be able to protect themselves. And on hearing this, McLean sat quiet for a long time, and then he said, I think you may have something there. And so that's like, that's the best explanation of these verses that I've heard. And if they're right, right they, they drive home this notion that part of the calling of Jesus on our lives is to go out into the world and tell other people about Jesus, right, to seek to advance the kingdom of Jesus even if it means going to places where we are, we're at great personal risk. For the original disciples, that meant going to places where they may need a sword to protect themselves. Part of what it means to follow Jesus is going out and advancing the kingdom, even at personal risk. We see this embodied today by missionaries who go to hard and dangerous places to tell people in those hard and dangerous places about the good news of what Jesus has done for them. And I've heard some of those missionaries say that one of the sweetest moments for them in their whole ministry is to see people take communion for the first time, to take the Lord's Supper, 
to see people express their newfound faith in a tangible way by taking the bread, taking the cup, and remembering the past work of Jesus. Looking forward to the future victory of Jesus. People in those hard, distant places, and they, they take communion with people in those hard contexts. They get to join together with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ from all around the world and take this meal through which we identify with Jesus. And we have the chance to do that now, this morning. It's the opportunity to, to join together at the, at the local church body here, to commune together, to, at, the, at the community of believers, to help one another remember the pathwork of Jesus, to encourage one another with the future promise of future victory for Jesus, and to urge one another to be faithful to the present calling of Jesus. So we get to join together as a, the local body. But we also get to join together with brothers and sisters in Christ from around the world who this morning are taking this same meal that Jesus has passed down from generation to generation. Join together with brothers and sisters from around the world who likewise are remembering all that Jesus has done for them. Who are likewise eagerly anticipating Jesus' return. We do all that this morning. I just urge you to not take it lightly. In a minute, I'll invite you to come forward, take a piece of bread from the tray, take a cup of juice from the, from the tray. If you need gluten-free elements, they're in the, the wicker basket in the back. I urge you to come forward on the side aisles and return to your teeth. We'll partake together. And as you sit waiting to partake together, I just urge you, invite you to reflect, to remember all that Jesus has done for you, to, to dwell on the sweet promise of the future victory of Jesus. to think about the present calling of Jesus on your life. And if you feel like you've fallen short of Jesus' calling on your life, to use that time to confess and to repent to God and to ask Him to help you to do more. If you're unable to come forward, if you need someone to bring you the elements, you just go ahead and raise your hand and we'll get those to you. In just a minute, I want you to come forward, grab the elements, return to your seats, and we'll partake together in just a few minutes. We'll let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for his work on our behalf. We thank you for all he's done for us. Lord, we use this time now to remember Jesus, to not take for granted the grace you've shown us, to remember all that Jesus suffered for us. We use this time to look forward to the new heavens and the new earth and your glorious kingdom being fully realized. Lord, we use this time to reflect on what it means to follow Jesus and to live like Jesus. 
faith all in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're ready, you can come, grab the elements, and return to your seats.
Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me behalf that are so worth remembering. We thank you that in your wisdom you gave us these tangible ways to remind ourselves of your grace toward us, your mercy toward us in Jesus. Father, we look forward to the day Jesus returns and your kingdom is fully realized and we join with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb and feast and celebrate being your children all together. But until that day comes, would you help us to live the life that Jesus had called us to live? Would you but to live the life that Jesus showed us, a life committed to serving others and advancing your kingdom. Father, we live the life you call us to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you go from here, would you go remembering the work of Jesus on your behalf and looking forward with hope to the future that he will usher in when he one day returns. You are dismissed.